Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Ken Baer of Faith Dialogue. We're in a sermon series called Unstoppable. It's based on the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's basically the history of the early church. Today we'll be continuing in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. In Acts 17, we were following Paul and Silas as they journeyed through uh, uh, Thessalonia. Um, a large capital city in Macedonia and what we refer to as the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. You know, last week we talked about in the scriptures um, how Paul and Silas uh, used reason with the Jews that the Messiah had to suffer and, and die. And we said that most likely Paul was using um, Isaiah chapter 53. In my Bible, it's titled, The Sin-Bearing Messiah. And just give me, let me review a couple of these verses with you. In Isaiah 5, chapter 5, it says, in, in verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. Then in verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, that's the sins, of us all. And we know that this is Jesus speak, uh, that Isaiah is speaking of, because in verse 9 it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, nor there was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and to put him to grief, and to make his soul an offering for sin. That, that's our sin, the sin of the world. So today we'll again be speaking in how these scriptures often speak very clearly of the Messiah, often very clearly speak the truth of the kingdom of God. But we have to have ears that can hear. We have to have hearts that are truly receptive. You know, last week we saw that when, while Paul delivered the scriptures very carefully and articulated to the Jews how the Messiah had to suffer and die, some of the Greeks believed and some of the women, but the Jewish men in particular just refused. They, they stopped up their ears. Uh, they were hard-hearted. You know, even today, when we have the scriptures, we have the Bible. Oh my goodness, we have so many Bibles in this country. And the, clearly, the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is coming back. There are many prophecies that indicate that the time is, is fast approaching. Yet there are many that refuse to believe. You know, and the Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter told us this. He said, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the very beginning. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. You see, the scriptures make it very clear, but we have to receive what the scriptures have to say. We have to have ears that hear and a heart that is receptive. Peter says 
that in the last days, that's these days, people will scoff. That's what scoffers do. They scoff. They say, where is the promise of his coming? Notice, however, that Paul um, compares the promise of Jesus coming with the actual creation of the world as well as the flood, the global flood during the time of Noah. It's very clear that, that people that refuse to acknowledge that God created the heavens and the earth and that he would be willing even to, to flood the very earth that he created and save humanity through Noah and his family, those people that choose to ignore that or refuse to believe it will also refuse to believe that Jesus is coming back again. So let's continue today. We are back in Acts chapter 17 and we'll be uh, beginning in verse 10 and open those ears that hear and a heart that's receptive. Verse 10, then the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonia, and when they received the word with all readiness, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. You know, so Paul and uh, Silas travel to Berea, and this time they arrive at a synagogue, and the scriptures say that these Jews were more fair-minded. Now, Dr. Luke is making a contrast between the Jews in Berea and the Jews in Thessalonia. Remember, it was in Thessalonia that while the Greeks and many of the women believed, the Jewish men refused. They just refused to believe. Now, two things earned this reputation of the Bereans. The first was that they received the word eagerly. Uh, secondly, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were true. You know, this, this man, this apostle Paul, uh, we admire him so much. He had such an amazing resolve. Even though he had experienced many hardships, and it's hard to, you know, it's hard to keep going when not, when not only do you have hardships, but you end up running from the opposition. Luke is presenting a contrast, and from this point forward, the name Berea will be associated with people that are, that are open, that search the scriptures and search for the truth, people that are willing to learn. Now, again, Berea is contrasted to Thessalonia in, in a number of different ways. One obvious contrast is the size of the cities. Remember we said that Paul's preference was to travel to key cities, and Thessalonia was definitely one of them. Berea, however, is, according to historians, a, a village, a, a very small place, something off the beaten path. Um, Paul would normally travel to the big cities, but for some reason he's directed to go to Berea. However, Berea did have an, an active synagogue, and this is where we see Paul and Silas. Now, the picture that Dr. Luke is, is painting today uh, of Berea is that he's painting a picture of what excellence looks like, not only for the Jewish communities, but for today's Christian communities as well. God wants his people to use their minds, their intelligence that God has given them. He wants them to use the scriptures that are so readily available. Um, unfortunately, the Bereans are more the exception than the rule, and that was true back in the time of Paul, and unfortunately it's also true for today. Let me illustrate this point, because I think it's important from um, about these two different groups, and I'm going to use a, a, a reference from my days when I was in the business world. 
these Thessalonian Jews, these hard-hearted Jews that are being contrasted with those in Berea, I would say that these hard, these Jews from Thessalonia are like a picture a department store manager um, who's very busy dealing with all the things that a department store has to deal with. And not only the customers, but the inventory and the messages and all of the things going on. And headquarters, his boss in headquarters, decides to send him a couple of people, probably younger people, that have new methods and new ways to be able to, to help this department store manager. But however, the thing is, is that this department store manager is hard to embrace any of these new methods and technology. The seasoned manager doesn't want to have his, his daily routine upset, his old processes changed. And then, as a result, he doesn't welcome these new people. Uh, he refuses to even consider that there are improvements that are needed. Uh, see, so the manager, these, these new people that come in to speak to the manager, not only do they have to present their case, but they have to overcome the resistance. It isn't that their new methods are faulty at all. They're, they probably are going to work, but they have to overcome the resistance because the manager is unwilling to even listen. Now, the Bereans, in contrast, are different. Uh, they're more noble, the Bible says, uh, that despite doing the same things over and over again, a department store manager that follows the example of the Bereans is still willing to, to listen. He still has ears to hear. Now, he's going to do his own due diligence. He's going to check out what they say and see if it really makes sense. He's going to compare it to the processes he has now. But the thing is, is he doesn't have to be sold on the opportunity for a new idea. He's, he's willing to accept that things can be different and also can be better. This is why I think Dr. Luke is saying these Bereans are more noble. Uh, they, were, they were Jews, just like the Jews in Thessalonia. They were waiting for the Messiah to arrive. And when Paul began to preach, they were receptive. They were eager to hear what he had to say. And although they had to do their due diligence, they had to search through the scriptures, they didn't have to be sold. They didn't have to be sold or convinced that perhaps the Messiah had actually come. They, um, they had ears to hear and they had hearts that were receptive. So let's, let's continue. Verse 13 says this, it says, But when the Jews from Thessalonia learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brothers sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. You know, as it is said, bad news travels fast. And for the Jews at Thessalonia, this would be bad news to think that this Paul that they had chased out of town was actually preaching still in Berea. And that not only that, but that Jews were receiving the message and believing what Paul had to say, uh, this, this made them crazy mad. Uh, in Berea, the Jews were believing, and these bad news Jews in Thessalonia couldn't tolerate that. So the scriptures tell us that the Jews from Thessalonia, the same men that had forced Paul out of their town uh, and had Jason post a bail, uh, they, they ended up going to Berea, and they were committed to disrupting the work of Paul and Silas there as well. Now this is a, a good lesson for us. It really is. You know, Jesus promised his disciples that just as, uh, as he was persecuted, they would also. But, Paul, but Jesus went one step further. 
He said, just as they hated me, they will hate you. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me long before. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. Now these Jews from Thessalonia, in verse 13, uh, stirred up the crowds. That's what, it said. That's what it says in verse 13. Now this happened to Paul five times before. Um, recently in uh, Pisidia, Antioch, in Iconium, and then in Thessalonia. Um, they're je je jealous Jewish men that are pursuing Paul wherever he goes and, and persecuting him. So these Thessalonian Jews um, recreate exactly the same turmoil that had happened before. Now there's two interesting developments as we read through this. There's two interesting developments. The first is that these Berean saints, these, these brand new disciples, um, quickly send Paul out of town. They, they see the trouble is coming and they know what the source of the trouble is. It's Paul. And they send Paul out of town probably to put a quick end to this, 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 uh, this mob. And secondly, notice in verse 14, it says that both Silas and Timothy stayed behind. Now this tells us something. It tells us that the purpose of these missionary journeys, you know, wasn't for the enlargement of the ministry of Paul, nor his popularity, but the purpose of these missionary journeys was to plant churches, to have new converts, to preach the gospel. You know, the, these Bereans that are now believers, are there in, in Berea and Paul and Silas, I'm sorry, Silas and Timothy are stayed behind so that they can teach them, so that they can encourage them, they can give them more opportunity to learn while they're there. They're only going to be there for a short time, so they want to make sure that these new believers are, are well grounded. It also could be that Paul's teaching uh, was a different style. Uh, perhaps he was a little bit more confrontational or perhaps he was a little bit more ab abrasive. You know, sometimes preachers need to confront and sometimes they need to comfort. Sometimes they need to challenge while at the same time, sometimes they need to, to reassure. All of these preaching styles can be profitable. So let's continue. Now in verse 15, it says, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, Paul's desire, it says very clearly, was for Timothy and Silas to, to join him, to join him here in Athens before he continues. They're, they're a team. They're a missionary team, and they work better as a, as a team. However, the scriptures say that Paul, while Paul was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked. And when he saw that the people had been given over to idols, a, a modern translation of the same verse says this. It says, Paul was deeply troubled 
by all of the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now this was likely Paul's very first time in Athens. And, and likely when he arrived there, he was, he was ready to be impressed. Have you ever done that? Travel to a, to a, to a capital city, maybe Paris or London or even Washington, D.C. And, and you're, you're excited, you're, you're ready to be impressed. In Athens, you had centuries of Greek culture. Um, this, was the, this was the center of the Hellenistic culture. Um, it was idealized in ancient Athens. Athens for hundreds of years served as the principal in the capital city of Greece, just as it is today. You know, no doubt Paul was, was ready to be impressed, but it says his spirit was vexed. That's the King James language. His spirit was provoked. His heart truly hurt for the people of Athens because of their obvious infatuation with all of these idols. So if you allow me just to give you a piece of history here, immediately what comes to mind is a, a, another young man, a preacher, uh, that traveled to Rome. This was 1500 years later. It was Martin Luther, who was an um, Augustinian monk and a priest. And he was sent by his order to Rome. And it was his very first time in Rome. And he actually walked there. He walked from Germany, from Wittenberg, all the way to, to Rome with another man. And, and Luther was said initially when he got to be in Rome was, was in awe of the splendor of the city and the majestic history. But historians tell us that Luther very quickly grew distressed, vexed, the same word, at the state of the religious life inside the city. He was shocked by the opulence, the worldliness of the residences of the clergy and the numerous indications in the town of, of immorality. Luther was very disappointed with the state of the church after he had visited Rome. And at that time, historians tell us he began to lose faith in the Roman church and the papacy in particular as an institution. You know, many historians point to this Luther's first trip to Rome as the beginning, one of the initial catalysts of Luther's growing disillusionment with the Church of Rome that ultimately led to um, the Protestant Reformation. So let, let's go back to our scripture. Enough of the history lesson. Let's go back to our scripture. And remember, it says, rather than wait for Timothy and Silas, Paul decides he's going to preach. The scripture says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue and then in the marketplace daily. Now, this is the beginning of what we know as soapbox preaching. You know, Bible doesn't mention that Paul used a soapbox, but Paul is taking the message of the gospel to the streets of Athens. Uh, for the Greeks, public discourse and debate was, was encouraged. This was what they did. This is what they lived for. And many cities had designated places, places of learning, specifically for that. Now, for the Greeks, public discourse and debate was encouraged. Um, here in Athens, Paul's preaching in the marketplace brought him to the attention of what we would know as the cultural elite. Uh, much like being in Oxford or, or Cambridge, this was a center of learning and, and an intellectual center of the day. And, and Paul, he's a scholar. He, he's up for the challenge. So let's continue with our reading today, verse 17. It says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to Aragopolis, saying, 
may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things men mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Okay, so let's translate some of these unusual words for you. The Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, the Epicureans pursued pleasure. That was, that was their main goal in life. It was their primary purpose. The Stoics were typically the opposite. Uh, they embraced virtue and they shunned pleasure. Religiously, they would be called pantheists because they believed that God was everywhere and in everything. Uh, the trees, the shrubs, and people, and animals, and, in, and inanimate objects. Um, kind of like in Star Wars, the whole idea of the Force, it was everywhere. It was very impersonal as well. The Epicurean and Stoics were well-known philosophies, and, and many they had many fans. However, there were, there were many other competing philosophies of the time, and they would get together here at the Ergopolis uh, to basically talk and to converse and to debate each other. So Paul is taken to the Argopolis. Actually, it's called Mars Hill, and it's much easier to pronounce Mars Hill, uh, where these ancient trials and debates were often held. Let's continue. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Argopolis and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now, this is very clever, very ingenious of Paul. He's talking with Greeks. He's talking with philosophers, people that fancy themselves as philosophers. And he's using something that they're very familiar with, and that's their paganism. There are many, many gods. And Paul began with a general reference to the religion, and then he points out this altar to the unknown god. So we'll go on, we're beginning now in verse 24, and we're almost through this passage in chapter 17. It says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own po poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. You know, Paul is telling them that it's God. There's one God that created everything, yet he's distinct from his creation, as opposed to the Stoic way of thinking. Paul lets, uh, lets them know that God is the creator and we are his creation. Paul tells them that God knows us and desires that we know him as well. Paul also quotes a, quotes a Greek poet who says, for we also are his offspring. Now he's quoting this poet to, to build a bridge uh, with his audience. That's what, that's what speakers do. Uh, he's trying to build a bridge and, he, and he's challenging 
their gods of gold and silver. It says, since we are as offspring, we are responsible to embrace the truth and must reject the wrong idea that gold and silver could represent God. Now, in Paul's closing comments, Paul tells them why it's important to choose wisely now, that there is a time in the future when there would be a judgment. Verses 30 and 31, Paul says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, this is Paul's summary, but it doesn't have a lot of detail. He gets their attention. He identifies how the God of the Bible and the plan of salvation is different from anything they've ever heard, from anything that their gods and their religious and their philosophies have taught them. He reasons with them why they need to have a relationship with God and closes with two amazing comments. And again, he just mentions them. He doesn't have time to go into them in depth. First, he said there was a judgment coming and everyone would be responsible. And secondly, he said there was a man. Now we know that as Jesus, the Messiah. He says there was a specific man that would be the judge and that God has raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead. So what was the response? Well, remember, this is Paul's first time at bat on Athens and on Mars Hill. Verse 32 says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus the Aerochabite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see that even in this relatively short and obviously radical presentation of the gospel, he not only gets the attention of some, we know that because they said, we will hear this again, and actually some believed, particularly these two people, a man and a woman, Dionysus and Demarius. Now, this is where we end today. This is the end of chapter 17. Paul argues persuasively in Athens, but this, this city is steeped in paganism and worldliness. There are a, a few converts. He mentions the two in specific. And the church in Athens to this day traces its roots to the Apostle Paul and this very encounter. Now Athens was a very rich city. It was the capital city. And the people were very quite proud of themselves. And they as a result were very resistant to the gospel. We'll see in the next chapter that Paul leaves Athens and travels then to Corinth. You know, there's no epistles to this church in Athens like there are to epistles to Ephesus and Thessalonians and to Corinth. Interesting, Athens was one of the last truly pagan cities in the Roman Empire. And many of the temples and the altars and shrines that Paul visited were active well into the 6th century. Long after the Roman Empire had embraced the religions of the religion of the apostles and determined that the name of the church would be Catholic. Let's pray. So Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, today for what you have provided for us. We thank you for these scriptures. We thank you, Lord. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. 
You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.